Well, this week I'm going to do part three to the message I've been doing about giving. First week was about giving as a supernatural lifestyle and what it means to live supernaturally now in the natural. To be naturally supernatural, meaning that the things that happen in the natural are the manifestations of a supernatural life. You know, supernatural meaning specifically living beyond our natural means, realms, and perspectives, and seeing things according to the scriptures. We talked about David and Goliath and how David saw something supernatural, and it expressed itself through his natural life, where he learned and trained in his worship and his warfare out with the sheep while he was just a boy. And so when God came to anoint a king, and he looked at the hearts of these men, there were many men on the outside that looked like great kings, but on the inside did not have that perspective, and they came to David, who was just a boy, but had the heart that God was looking for. He had lived that, and therefore he was able to go out and take down the giant because he had learned how to trust God and live supernaturally when he faced off against the lions and the bears. And that's crazy when we start talking about lions and bears as the light work for hand-to-hand combat. Right? Like if we brought a bear here and we said, line up for who wants to fight it hand-to-hand. There'd be no line, and we know it. There'd be, in a, there'd be some people who need help that would line up, but it would be a quick death. And so it wouldn't be very beneficial for the message. Last week, I specifically talked about giving, targeted in on giving. And I talked about this, guys. I prerequisite by making this statement. The message is not about your actions, but about your heart and mind. And that's between you and God and the people close to you. Okay? Your accountability, your mentors, stuff like that. People that have the right to challenge you in your life that you've given that. That's fine, but it's about your heart and your mind. What I say up here should be challenging your heart, meaning the way you feel, see, think, and your mind, the way you think about it. Okay? I'm not challenging you to start taking this percentage and give these dollar amounts to this thing and that thing. That's between you and God. But between you and God should mean you sitting down in front of the scriptures saying, God, show me what you say in your word, how you want me to live. And so I went really long last week going over like a bazillion scriptures and showing you the pattern in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, Paul in the New Testament, and showing how this progression of giving financially and materially has been at the core of God's instructions from the beginning because he understands what sits at the heart of that. And so I want to jump in there, right? If you want to hear that, listen to last week's message. I like gave like a solid hour and 20 minutes on it. So you can listen to that. This, today we're going to do less than that by significant amounts, hopefully. I want to bring it back to the first message I taught a couple weeks ago, though, about supernatural living. Because this was at the heart of everything. The whole reason why I even wanted to bring up giving, specifically, was because... I really see it in scripture and in practical upbringing as one of the major obstacles to us embracing a supernatural life. And I think 
giving and money specifically and possessions, material things that we have, is single-handedly the biggest obstacle we have to living as cheerful and generous and supernatural and sacrificial givers. And this lifestyle, seeing God come through. And I'm just saying that from my own experience, but also I think Scripture bears it out. When you listen to last week's message, how I showed no matter what the issue was, Paul hit it and said that was enough. But whenever it came down to giving, he elaborated how there was reward in return for you living that type of way and giving that type of way. Every time. In the Old Testament, it was then followed by reward, where so many other things weren't. In the New Testament, Jesus, when he taught about it, followed up with reward, where so many things weren't. Paul, every time he taught the church about giving, it was followed up with reward, where other things weren't. I think it's because it's tied to this need. Right? There's, if we're just talking common sense practical... If I said, I'm going to take away all your money and your possessions from you right now, the logical conclusion would be this. You'd have no way to eat, no place to sleep, no, play, no way to clothe yourselves, no way to take care of your children, your spouse, your friend. Like, you would be, you would be empty. You'd have no means to do those things in this natural life. And these times, it was so much about money because they also had trade and they could they they lived according to producing their own food and building their own shelters and they didn't have the same uh, economic systems that we have today so it looked different for them but today the economic system in our world but especially here is simply this if you don't have money you don't survive money is used to get everything you need to live, to survive. It's a necessity because of what it, it can be exchanged for. If you wanted to go live off the grid somewhere and you found some uncharted mountain region and you could grow enough food and you found a source of water and you built your shelter, you don't need money. But apart from that lifestyle, guys, you need money. You, you need it. It's a need. And this is why it sits at the center of this thing. It's always been the need. Either money or the thing money, money is exchanged for has always been a life source need. And therefore it's targeted in Scripture, the whole Scripture, as a warning never ever to put your dependency in those things. And that's a high task. God is saying, you need these to survive. Don't ever depend on it. Well, what's the carrot? The carrot is this. I am your provision. And that is what makes it supernatural. This is what separates the supernatural from the natural. Is that those who live in the natural world put their hope and dependency in the natural thing that they see providing their ability to survive. The supernatural life responds to the call of God who says, don't do that. Look above that, beyond that, look to a supernatural source and trust that all natural things are submitted to this supernatural source. That's the call of a Christian today. Yesterday and forever. 
This is why I'm saying it's a supernatural thing. I also think it's supernatural and I think it's real because of this. I could come up here and I'm just being, I'm going to be transparent, super honest, uncomfortably honest for a second. I can't think of a topic that I could come up here and preach on that would make me feel uncomfortable preaching on it and nervous about doing it because of the response and the flack that I would get for doing it. No topic. I'd be totally comfortable up here preaching on eschatology, knowing that 25% of you would leave the church afterwards. It doesn't make me feel hesitant, yet talking about money does. Coming up here, the reason why my message was so long last week was because when I was preparing it, I was stressing. I was like, I need to show just absolute, incontributable, rock-solid, scriptural evidence and narrative here because they're going to need that so they know this is my opinion. Why is that, though? I've thought about it. And I, I can tell you honestly, in just full transparency, I don't think it's because I'm afraid to talk about it. I talk about it all the time in my life, but on video, on camera, as a leader of a local church, which is one of the prime targets that giving happens, you start thinking, okay, there's so many reasons for why people would respond negatively and harshly and fight back and attack you afterwards. One, people have experienced the abuse and the manipulation in the church over money. Because it's true, it's happened a grotesque amount, entire Teachings have emerged from this that are grotesque and anti-scriptural. And people have been taken by it. And so some of you guys are like, I will never be taken again. Some of you guys do it because you just don't know. You haven't seen the teachings in scripture. And it's touching on your, your life source, your provision. And then there's some of you guys who literally just don't want to be generous with your money you want to be generous with everything else but this is comfort and i don't want this touched and i'm going to push back and i'm going to come up with some form of a a analysis of scripture to show you why i don't have to give my money it's fine for me to just give my time and my thoughts and whatever else i give that's fine but i don't have to give money just ask paul you're so old testament These are all thoughts out there, and we build defenses against it. And so I've been like, man, this is tough. And then I decided, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And just to help some of you guys, because I know there's obstacles here, to remind you guys, I don't get paid a single red penny for anything I do for this church. For any of the time I give... For any of the preaching or message or prep time or counseling or ministry or service, nothing. Not one penny. All of that I give to the Lord because I love Him. And I want to be a cheerful giver with my life and everything else. Ask my family. I give my family to the Lord. They sacrifice because of decisions I make to give our whole family and ourselves to the Lord. We open up our house 24-7. We constantly strive to have somebody living there 
that we can minister to, mentor, express this life to. <clears throat> and then I also give my money. That's right, guys. I work full-time hours for the church, and I pay them for the right to do so. I want you to understand this, not because I want you to think I'm awesome. I want to cut out at the knees half of the objections that could come out. I have no financial interest in getting you to give to the church, but I have eternal interest in getting you to give to the church. I have partnership interest in getting you to give to the work of God here. I believe that at some point in the future, we are going to have an entire team of people that are being funded to do the work of the kingdom through this local church expression that will reach the ends of the earth. But I don't think we're ready yet. And so I I wanted to dive in because I see this as a real obstacle. God has given us great and precious promises in Scripture. And to this local church, He's given great promises. One of the foundational ones where He mapped out His trajectory for us to grab hold of something and, and watch Him do it is land, wealth, that there would be land coming. Supernaturally, you're sitting on it right now. A hundred acres of land that were just supernaturally provided for us in ways that we could not have done on our own. Here it is. And we're in the beginnings of a wealth stage where we see God providing wealth everywhere, all over the place. The land is starting to produce it. People are being blessed. Generous givers are being generously given to. By the Lord, we see this. And we're like, this is the season of that? God, then you're probably doing something in our hearts with this. And so we're digging in. Because souls is the end result of this promise, guys. But he's looking for us to be prepped for that. Because if you think it's not going to cost us for souls, (laughs) what do you think is going to happen? They're going to come in, do an altar call, we're going to say amen, and they're going to go live their luxurious life? This is a big task, but this is why I believe we're in the lions and the bears stage here, guys. There are giants that have to fall in our culture, in our country, in our land. They have to. And the giant slayers come from the church. But we have to become confident by taking out the bears and the lions first and I think becoming cheerful generous, sacrificial supernatural givers and livers is the bear and the lions that we're here facing just think about this these are some of the notes I wrote God is training his people on lions and bears now because there are giants that need to fall for people to be set free What can stop us if the threat of loss of possession and life no longer hold any power over us? Think about that. What could stop us from moving forward in power and confidence and deliverance for the lost and bringing the kingdom of God from heaven to earth if the loss of possessions and life were no longer a threat to us? John tells us in Revelation, he says this, looking at the future, he said, They overcame by the blood of the Lamb 
and the word of their testimony and not loving their lives even unto death. And here we are. What is the word you're testifying of? What does your life testify to? Does it testify to supernatural provision? Does it testify to supernatural works of God in your life? Because it's the word of that testimony. And it's not loving your life or the things of this life, even to the point of being willing to die, being willing to give up your entire life. Covered by the blood. This is how we overcome. So imagine what could stop us if the threat of the loss of those things was no longer a threat. A reminder, Jesus said no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate one or love the other. So therefore, you cannot serve both God and money. That's what Jesus said. It's worth thinking about. It's worth wondering how this applies. It's worth wondering about what he meant by that. Why did he compare this to this? How do they contrast? How are they opposed? Why does he say, I can only love one? Right? He explains it. Your heart will be with one. It can't be with both. He tells us, Luke quotes Jesus and says, hey, it's better to give than to receive. Do we live that way? Matthew 19 to 21, he reminds us, don't store up treasures here where it can be destroyed. But instead, store it up where Christ is, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. He doesn't leave it as a mystery. He says, hey, if you've wondered where your heart is, where your allegiance is, where your heart is lined up with, it's really easy. Take a self-assessment and look to see where your treasure is. Evaluate what are the things you treasure, that you work for, that you give for, that you sacrifice for. That's your treasure. Those are the things you value. That's where your heart is. It's just that simple. Remember in Luke 21... We talked about how he looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. And he says, takes this teachable moment. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. All she had to live on. I want to blow your mind with this, guys. Because this sits at the center of where I'm going. The temple had a temple tax that you had to pay. It was enforced. It was a genuine tax for Israel called the temple tax. Every male Jew above the age of 20 had to pay it. But that's it. Those are the only people who had to pay it. Every male... Jew, over 20. That means if you were not a male, you were not a Jew, and you were not over 20, you didn't have to pay a church tax. This old widow, she was not a male. She's tax exempt. She doesn't have to pay the church debt, the temple tax. 
Jesus describes, but here's the thing, there were, there were something like 20 different chests around the temple to give. And like six or nine of them were dedicated to the tax, and the rest were dedicated to gifts, free will gifts and offerings for the people of Israel to come and freely give for the purpose of making sure the temple remained the epicenter of the witness of God on the earth. It was just there. And all throughout the tabernacle, that was the call. Guys, we want to build the residence of God on the earth so that the witness of God resonates and lives here. This widow and the wealthy men before her were not giving a tax. They were freely giving gifts because they wanted to see the purpose of Israel and the temple and the witness of God to be fully funded and taken care of and being the mission that God called it to be. Do you understand? They were freely giving above and beyond the tax to make sure the mission was fully funded. And then Jesus looks and says, look at these wealthy people. They're giving a good amount of money. And that's great. But as far as before God, their heart goes, they were giving what came easily. It was no sacrifice for them to give what they were giving. And he looks at the widow who gave everything she had left to live on as a gift. It was not required. She came and from the abundance of her heart wanting to see the glory of God manifest on the earth and be part of that, she just wanted to be part of that, came and gave the two pennies that she had left to live on and said, I'm yours, God. And Jesus points it out and says, right there, that's what I'm teaching. This is what I'm here for. This is what I'm looking for. This is why Paul instructs Timothy to teach the the wealthy people to not store up their treasure now, but rather be wealthy towards God. It's why King David, when he came to make sacrifices to bring the ark into the, the city, the presence of God, the people who owned the land offered to give it to him for free and he refused. He said, how dare I not sacrifice for in exchange for what I'm getting for, from God in this, his presence. Like that's what David said. So we get that point. Paul goes on and says this. Hey, God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give out of compulsion. Don't give out of church tax. Don't give because it's required. Don't give because you've heard lots of teachings on tithe and 10%. God feels I'm done with that page. (laughs) Don't give because of that. Do you understand? You give because God loves a cheerful giver. Thank you so much. This is the point. Paul says, don't give out of compulsion. Do not give out of compulsion. But instead, give out of a higher motivation. Give out of the widow's motivation. Give out of the motivation where God says, I love a cheerful giver. Imagine what the God of the heavens and the earth, the God of 
who hold, owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the very God who holds the power to gain wealth, would do for somebody that he absolutely loves. Paul then goes on to say, I've learned the secret of contentment. It's this. I can be content in a lot, and I can be content in a little. You know why? Because I've learned this secret, that no matter what, he always provides what I need to do the mission. You know why that scripture doesn't mean anything to a lot of Christians? Because they're not living for the mission. They're like, oh, great, yes, I have enough to do the mission. Well, what about the rest? What about the other stuff that I want to live on? What about, you know, my nice yard? What about my car? What about my lake house? What about my, my dreams? What about my retirement? What about, what about, what about? Thanks for providing for the mission, God, but what about? And Paul says, here's the secret I've learned. I have learned to just be content in all states because I have everything I need to do what I'm here to do. Paul certainly enjoyed good things. He tells us he learned to be content in abundance. But here's what also he said. See, Paul held everything, all these possessions with an open hand before the Lord. And he makes this statement. He says, talking about himself and the church, like saying, guys, have this mindset. That he owned nothing, but possessed everything. Think about that. He's saying, it's true, guys. We own nothing, but we possess all things. Because the God who owns it all gives and takes away as he sees fit. And we can take possession of the things that are his as he wills it. But you have to have an open hand. You have to be willing to be eating with governors in one moment and being shipwrecked almost dead in another. You have to be willing to watch your bank account soar to six digits and then be emptied out at one word from the Lord. And still find your contentment in that. And still trust that you are perfectly provided for and perfectly safe. You guys heard of C.S. Lewis? He was asked about giving. And it was in the discussion of how much should we give or how much should we not, right? This really lame, like, childlike discussion. Of people looking for numbers, check, check boxes to check 10%, 12%, 2%, pre tax, post tax. Just silly, missing the point conversations. And he said this I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. What does he mean by safe? Safe in what way? What context is he saying safe? Well, you read on. This is what he always means when he's saying safe. Safe in the context of doing what is right before the Lord. And he says, I am afraid the only safe rule of doing what's right and what's desired by the Lord is to give more than we can spare. 
If this doesn't challenge you, you're not listening. It challenges me every time I type it out and think, I'm going to say that out loud? Like, what happens when I have to self-evaluate? Or what happens when the critics come at me for preaching this and want to evaluate? Am I ready to, to demonstrate this truth? And again, comes always back to this for me. Is our treasure Christ and our mission his mission? Or is that just a side quest in our life? Are you on your own mission and just doing side things for Christ? Participating in his mission when you can, during your free time? When you got some empty spots for him? That's a dangerous spot to be. It's a dangerous spot to be. So, I asked this question. I said, would heaven still be heaven for you if Jesus wasn't there? If your whole family, friends, everything you've ever dreamed of was there, but Jesus was the only thing missing, would that still be heaven for you? Ask yourself that and then reverse it. What if it was only Jesus there? None of your friends, none of your family, nothing else you've ever dreamed about. Is that heaven for you? It's a good evaluating question. It exposes the truth of this, that we have found our satisfaction, we found our contentment, and our fulfillment in the gifts God has given to us instead of the gift giver. We have laid hold of the gifts and not let go instead of laying hold of the gift giver and allowing the gifts to come and go, trusting that they will always be there. Meaning he will always be generous. He will always be the provider. It will always look different. Today it might look like a brand new 2023 Toyota Camry. We'll go middle of the road. Tomorrow that thing might get wrecked and you're driving a 2001 Ford Fiesta with a hole in the bottom. You can see the road passing by as you drive. Are you content? <laughs> you need That's fine. I like honesty. I talked about Abraham, how he's a beautiful example of how he found his satisfaction and fulfillment in the gift giver and not the gifts. And I want to blow your mind, guys. His gift was like the greatest gift ever given in the scriptures as far as from God to man. We literally call him the promised son. Your salvation is only possible because God gave Abraham Isaac as a son. I don't know if you knew that, but now you do. You go to hell with everyone else forever if God doesn't give the gift of Isaac to Abraham. And God says, Abraham, kill him. And Abraham's just like, let me make sure I'm clear on this, God. I want to get this straight because like all that stuff you said before, I was really putting my faith in. And God says, do it. And Abraham did it. Do you understand? He did it. And God stopped him right before Isaac actually was killed. Abraham committed and actually went through with it. Before the Lord. 
And Abraham said, I mean, God said to Abraham, now I know that your heart is with me and it's not even with your, your own son. Your son that carried the weight of all the promises I've made to you, knowing that if your son died, so did all the promises I made to you. Every promise that I had made to you that you've been following me for dies when your son dies. And still you valued knowing me and obeying me over every promise I've ever made to you. And because of that, God said, you are going to be the father of my faith. Through you and only you, every family on the earth will be blessed because of you. Abraham lived a supernatural life. And we know the New Testament gives us more insight. That Abraham did it believing that God could resurrect Isaac if he had to. To fulfill the promises. But the one thing he knew was that God would fulfill the promises somehow. Even though he could not see how he would do it in that moment. Abraham was rock solid convinced and had convinced himself That even if it required resurrection, which Abraham had never seen, God could do it. That's Abraham. He understood that gifts are meant to be expressions of his love and provision and not competitors for his affection. But when we make the gifts competitors for our affection towards God himself, we find ourselves in idolatry. And then captivity and slavery and bondage and ultimately destruction and death. And God is saying, hey, I got more for you. Gifts are expressions of his love and provision, not competitors for his affection. That guy, C.S. Lewis, I just quoted. I'm going to quote him again. I quoted him last week, but you need to hear it. He said this. The settled happiness and security which we desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. You will never find what's in your heart in this world. The world's designed in such a way to not give it to you. But joy, pleasure, and merriment, he has given you in times and seasons. We are never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It's not hard to see why. The security we all crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world. And it would be an obstacle to our return to God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bath, a football match. These things have no tendency to draw our hearts away permanently. And our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends. But will never encourage us to mistake them for home. And I love that point. He just drives it home. You may have moments and seasons of joy and happiness and abundance, but he will never, ever encourage you to mistake that for your home. We are pilgrims. We are on a journey to our home. That same Abraham, it says he looked to the heavens for a city with a foundation whose maker was God. He knew that his home wasn't this earth. That's what made Abraham Abraham. And so, here's my point, guys. Giving. I want you to see the practical reality that I feel like is exposed in Scripture for giving. I wrote this. Giving. And what I mean by that is cheerful giving, sacrificial giving, generous giving, missional giving. Is a lot like fasting 
and its purpose before God. Fasting is denying your body something it needs. Food. That's why fasting in Scripture is food. Your body is saying, hey, I need food to live. And you're like, I know. You're not getting it. You're not in charge here. My spirit man is in charge. The will of the Father is in charge. Right? And so your body then starts to go into starvation mode. And it starts screaming and saying, you will submit to my desires. And fasting says, no, I won't. My belly, you're not my God. You may hunger for things, but there's something I hunger for that can't be satisfied with material, natural things. Fasting screams that. In the same way, giving is denying your soul something it is bent towards depending on. Making it a God in your life. You end up putting all your dependency, security, and provision in that thing. And giving says, I refuse to have those things in you. Giving frees the soul to find its trust, its hope, and its satisfaction in Christ alone. And this is why, from Genesis to Revelation, giving is stressed and focused on. Because we can't outgive the provider of all good things. And just remember, where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. Where is your treasure? That's where your heart is. If your treasure is in your bank account, your savings account, your retirement fund, your house, your family, whatever, then it's not with God. I love that this is what made the church, the first church, the church in Jerusalem, such an authentic expression of the move of God on the earth. That they naturally and freely responded with no call for, for uh, a temple tax or a church tithe or anything. They responded with such abundant giving, no strings attached, just came, sold possessions, did whatever they could, and put it at the feet of the apostles, the leaders of the church, and said, let's see the mission, let's see this mission grow. Let's see this mission fulfill its purpose. And it says they were joyfully doing this. And then Luke decides, hey, I want to point out how there were two people who wanted to be part of that, but not with the right heart. So they came and they made it seem like they were also part of that joyful mission-focused lifestyle and giving. Instead, they held back for themselves. And then they lied that they gave it all. And God says, there's no room in my church for that. And he dealt with it swiftly and severely because the purity of his witness was paramount at the birth of his church. It had to be pure. The motives had to be right. The giving was, was one of the biggest visual expressions of that. Here's the practical part. Here's the part that makes me nervous, but here we go. If you don't give of your material resources towards the fueling and funding of the local mission that you have been called to, in light of everything the scripture teaches us, the question is why? Ask yourself that. Remember, this is about your heart and your mind. Okay? Your heart and your mind. You don't have to fill out a survey on your way out and give your answers. You give your answers before God. I'm just the voice challenging you to think about the question so that you give an answer to the Lord. If you don't give 
of the things you actually possess and value to the local expression of this mission that you've partnered with. Why? What are the reasons you've, you've, you've developed, come up with? Wrestle with that before God. See if they're rationale, if they're biblical, if they're right, or if they reveal a heart attitude that's not surrendered to the Lord and doesn't trust Him. And lastly, I want to show you why the value of the church is so paramount to the Lord, and this is why we give to it, why we want to see it succeed so desperately. And you've heard me teaching this a bazillion times, but the church is the physical manifestation and expression of Christ on the earth. That's its call. That's its identity. That's its purpose. Christ said it's better for him to leave than not leave. Christ was saying it is better for there to be billions of representations of the Father here on earth than just one. And so he left, and the Holy Spirit comes and infills and possesses the church and purifies the church and raises up the church, which is meant to be a pillar of righteousness and truth on the earth, and it's meant to shine. It is the only expression the world has to know Christ sincerely. So it must succeed at all costs. And you know, during the persecuted church at the beginning, when you were murdered for being a Christian, their expression came through their generous caring for, the, for the, the poor and the needy and the lost. As a church, the needy knew they could come to the church. They would find the gatherings. And then the church did expressions like burying the, the, the Gentile and pagan dead bodies that were left in the streets due to the plagues. The church would risk their lives out and do it for the clarity and the, the cleanliness of the city. And that light shone. Historians talk about it. Read about it all day today. You can read about it. This is what the early church did. But you know when God finally released the church because their light and their witness had become so profound and so powerful that it converted emperors. I want you to understand that. The church in its persecution was such a witness that it converted emperors. And emperors were used by God to convert nations. And I'm not glorifying it like it was all sunshine and rainbows, right? There's goats and there's sheep. There's wheat and there's chaff in every time. Man, Jesus himself had Judas. The church has never been perfect while it's on earth. But it doesn't change the fact that God was doing something supernatural. And as soon as the church was able to shine... On a grand scale, do you know what it started to do? It started building witnesses and representations and monuments to the glory and greatness of God. And those things have stood the test of time. You can travel the earth and visit those places today because they're still standing. And they're a testament and a testimony to where people's treasure was. These things were the most expensive things on earth at the time. And people didn't care. They wanted the glory of God to be expressed on the earth at all costs. And then, of course, the church corrupted that. Human greed came in. Of course, we know that's the history of the church. It's good and bad. It's wheat and chaff. It's sheep and goats. But it doesn't change the fact that God was doing something amazing through his church the whole time. 
This is what I mean by church, guys. I want you to see this. And I'm closing right here on Melchizedek. Because why wouldn't you? It's Melchizedek. Abraham, before the law, before there was any such thing as a tithe, before there was such thing as a tabernacle or temple tax, before there was any compulsive giving or anything required, Abraham goes to battle and he wins, and he wins this great battle. And one of the kings that he fought for and helped win was a king named Melchizedek. And he was the king of a place called Salem, which future later on we realized was Jerusalem. The city of God. The place where the temple gets built. The place where the tabernacle dwells. The place where the throne of David is set up. The place where Christ is going to rule and reign from the very throne of David himself. Melchizedek is already a high priest to the Most High God from that place. And he comes as a high priest of the Most High God and he comes to greet Abraham. And he says this, he says, Blessed be Abraham. He gives a blessing. The high priest of the Lord releases the blessing of God on Abraham. Here's one of the cool things that he does right before he blesses him. He shows up and brings out bread and wine. Come on, just let your wheels start turning where I'm going with this already. Melchizedek, the high priest of the Lord, before Abraham's even established, comes out and after a battle and he brings out bread and wine and then he blesses Abraham with the blessing of God as the priest. And Abraham's response to receiving bread and the wine and the blessing was to cheerfully give tenth of everything he owned. So watch this track record, guys, so you see the heart of the father of our faith. He goes to battle, which costs resource a lot, risks his own men's lives, his own stuff. So that's, that's an expense. He comes out bread and wine of the high priest here. He's taking communion, guys. It's the body. It's the fellowship. It's the body of Christ. It's the ecclesia. It's the church of God. It's the witness of God. And he's taking it, and then he's blessed by it. And then he says, this, I want to give. Even after he just expended, he gives a tenth of everything he owns. And that was a lot. And then... The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah that were rescued say, Abraham, you can take the billions of dollars worth of bounty of the nine kingdoms you just conquered. Take it all. It's all yours. And Abraham says, wow, that's, that's a lot of money, but I can't take it. I refuse to because I will not allow anyone to say that they made me great because God has promised to make me great. And the witness of God on the earth is more valuable than the billions you're offering me. And then, because of that response, God turns around. Remember, Abraham is only given, and all he's received back is a blessing from the bread and the wine and the priest of God. And God says, Abraham, don't worry. Clearly, Abraham was probably worrying. God doesn't waste time or words. And God felt it necessary to remind Abraham, don't worry. Don't be careful, Abraham. I will be your shield and your exceedingly great reward. 
And Abraham goes on to be super rich and the father of our faith after that. Here's the cool thing about Melchizedek. When you read about him in Hebrews, it makes it clear that Melchizedek was a high priest in the order that Christ comes to be a high priest. Christ is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Great, Steve, that's awesome. What on earth does that mean? This is what it means. Christ, superior to the law. Okay? In the law that came after Abraham with Moses, God put into the law that only Levites could be the priests and only priests could serve God in the temple. Only the priests could do it. No one else could do it. If someone else did it, they were stricken dead for defiling the holy sanctuary of the Lord. You had to be a priest appointed by God to do it. Well, Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And he was not a priest from the order of Moses and the law. He was a priest from the order of Melchizedek. What made him special? He was appointed by God directly and not through physical lineage. He was of the order of Melchizedek, which the scripture says, has no father or mother or beginning or end of time, but was like the Son of God. And this Melchizedek received the offering from Abraham. And the author of Hebrews goes on to stress why this was so important. Because he says, listen, the lesser always tithes to the greater. And he even points out and says, therefore, the lesser priesthood of Levi was already in Abraham's loins. In other words, they're going to eventually come from Abraham. So this was like the Levite priesthood tithing to the Melchizedek priesthood, showing it was a greater priesthood and that it was a lesser thing. And so the author makes this point to say Christ is greater than the law. And what did Melchizedek bring out? He brought out the bread and the wine. And what does the priest that came in the order of Melchizedek, our high priest who reigns forever, that our salvation is based on, bring out when he's making this point, the bread and the wine? And then what does he tell us it represents? His body, his blood. This is amazing. This is, it, it, it speaks to the eternality of this concept of the heart of God that the church sits at the center of this, that Christ made such a big deal, ties it in, he's referencing Melchizedek's gift and blessing, and then he says, here's, here's something to let you know, this is actually my body and my blood, it's broken and shed for you, so that you can become one with me. That is supposed to be something so amazing that we give everything to everything to even if it causes us to fear and requires God to come and say fear not I am your shield your protector your provider and I will be your exceedingly great reward this is what's at risk here and I love it little side note too after Jesus resurrects you can go home and think about this it's really cool I don't have time to go deep but think about this on the road to Emmaus Two of the disciples are walking and they're downcast. They're sad because Jesus is dead. And there's rumors that he resurrected, but they haven't seen it. And they don't quite really believe it. They're actually walking away from the city. 
And Jesus meets them on the road, but they don't recognize them. And they're talking about it. Well, they go and they encourage them to come and sit with them and eat. And so they sit down and eat. And Jesus, it tells us, picks up the bread. And then he breaks the bread and disappears in front of their very eyes. And it was at this moment that the disciples say, How did we not recognize that it was Jesus? Didn't our hearts burn within us as he explained the scriptures to us? How he explained how everything in the Old Testament was pointing to him and his resurrection. And then the author says this. He made himself known in the breaking of the bread. About that. He made himself known to them in the breaking of his bread. Now you go back and look up all the things the breaking of the bread meant, especially in light of what I just showed you, what Jesus talks about, what Melchizedek did, the significance of it with Abraham. It's powerful, but what it points to is this. This is the mission we're on. We're meant to be supernatural, cheerful, generous, sacrificial, missional, giving people. And that will demonstrate Christ on the earth when they see this. How will they know that, they're, that we're his? By our love, one for another, and that doesn't mean hugs. By us living through the sacrificial giving and bringing what we have and laying it at the feet of the Lord for him to do what he will with and trusting him in that. Let's stand up. I want you to hear this last quote from uh, a position of action, ready to go. Because this thing's stirring. Remember in Romans 2, it says this, that for from him and through him and to him are all things. Paul says that right at the end of one of his his most powerful gospel messages to a church. And he says, remember that all things are from him and back to him and even come through him. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God has us in the training field. He's put some bears. He's put some lions in front of us. And it's time for us to recognize that and to embrace it. And to remember that it's in the sacrifice, in the suffering, that we only have an opportunity to share in for this tiny bit of time that we see Christ and we grow in him and we get to know him. And if something like material possessions and security holds us back from that, we will be the most to be pitied and we will walk in such regret. But when we live for Christ and we recognize it's Christ and his mission that matters, if we are living for Christ and his mission as our primary mission and not some side quest, then we will be able to say with Paul that I am content in abundance or lack because I found this out that no matter what, my God provides everything I need for the mission. I will never go with less than what I need to do what he's asked me to do. Jonathan Edwards, this is the quote, this is what he said. And this is where the church, where I believe this this wealth stage is driving us. Right? The land stage got our attention. It provided a place for us to set up a witness of Christ in the middle of the place he's given us and to build from to allow the ecclesia to begin to rule and reign from here. 
And now we've moved into wealth. And sure, bringing wealth in is part of that, but that's just the practical part. What's he doing in his church? This, bringing us back to this. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. That means humans. That's just how Jonathan Edwards talks. God is the highest good of the human being. The enjoyment of him is our proper goal. And it's the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations we find here. Better than fathers, better than mothers, better than husbands and wives, better than children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These people are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun itself. These are but streams, but God is the very fountain these streams come from. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Edwards is trying to stress this very point. Heaven is not heaven if Christ isn't there. And if Christ is there alone, it's fully heaven. Everything else is but expressions of his love and his gifts and his joys and his opportunities to us through people, through possessions, through things. They're all expressions that, are, that will do one of two things. They will turn your heart towards God because you love God and not money. Or they will turn your heart away from God because you love the things and not God. But they will produce one of two things. You will be able to sit back and say, wow, how God loves me so. How can I be like him and generously love others as well? God is training his people on lions and bears right now because there are giants in the land that need to fall for people to be set free. What can stop us if the threat of loss of possession in life no longer hold any power over us? As always, guys, I want us to begin to pray into that right now. Just begin to pray into it. Very honest, transparent, gut-level honest prayers here. And just ask God this dangerous prayer and say, God, please, despite my, my fleshly resistance even now, please show me and expose to me the places that are not aligned with you and your mission. Show me the places of fear and lack where I have not put my trust in you. Show me the areas where I am not walking out the truth that my lips proclaim. God, start with me and start in my heart and make me a generous giver. Change my heart, transform my heart. Allow my heart's response to you, God, to be to trust and to give as a demonstration of that. 
that I would go all in with what you're doing on the earth, God, and where you've placed me to be a vital part of that. That I would give of my life, of my time, of my resources, of my family, of my emotions, my thought life. I would love you with all of my mind, Lord. I would love you with all of my strength, Lord. I would love you with all of my heart and emotions and affections. And if that's you, this is one of those things where where there's powerful prayer available here, guys, where we need to pray into this, okay? So it's not an altar call, but it is a step to come up. If you want prayer and you want to go after God in this, this is one of those things to do it, where you come up and you say, God, I want help. I want help with this. I want to be set free. I want to be unlocked to be completely free from anything that this world would use to hold me back. Anything that I've put any dependence or trust in. To go after you and you alone. We're just going to start worshiping because man, that's, that's where this warfare happens. You worship the Lord from this place of wanting to be free from the places you feel these things have a grip on. You go after it right now. You do it and you let it carry on. That's it. Let's do it. If you want prayer, you come on up. We got prayer people here ready to pray with you. Don't be shy. Otherwise, go after God right now. Just begin to go after it.